Sundays. Um, the last three Sundays, I have been out of town. First, Sonia and I went away for Christmas, uh, so we were in Vermont for a week's vacation, uh, and then I was gone for two Sundays. Um, do I need to turn these off? I was gone for two Sundays in North Carolina, uh, working, uh, doing some further, uh, further education. So um, I was actually in a church in South Carolina last Sunday, preaching uh, and representing Mosaic uh, and trying to develop some partnerships that I think will aid us uh, as a church uh, in the long term. So I was talking about you guys last week and really missing you. Um, it's, better, it's better to be here with you in person than just tell people about you, because um, uh, we really love you guys. I'd like to follow up with, uh, with what Sean has just recounted. We wanted to share the words of Dr. King, uh, because this is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Obviously, we will be observing the, the holiday as a country tomorrow. Most um, well, all government businesses, um, all um, schools, banks, a lot of government institutions will be closed and many other businesses will be closed tomorrow. And we thought it was an opportunity for us to talk not just about Dr. King's legacy, but about uh, this idea of justice. Everybody knows, uh, if you've hung out at Mosaic for any length of time, one of our key core values, we call it our DNA. Uh, we have three strands of our DNA. One is that we are a church that makes disciples. One is that we're a church that lives like a family. And then one is that we are a church that is for all Nations, and that we intentionally want to be a church that is representative of Brooklyn, representative of New York City, um, and is not mono-ethnic, meaning it's not just one kind of people. Um, so we wanted to take this opportunity um, as our country is thinking about Dr. King and thinking about his legacy um, to kind of hone in on one of those issues that Dr. King talked about a lot and that is still very relevant today. And that's the topic of justice. Um, you can go ahead and start the, uh, start the slides, Trey. Um, this is a picture. Um, I don't know if you could read the writing uh, in the picture, but it's a picture from Memphis, Tennessee at the uh, memorial uh, for Dr. King, where, where uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Several of us went there, uh, I believe it was in April, um, before Danasia had moved away. Danasia was with us, Sonia and I, Sean, Kevin, and Emily, and Josiah. Um, we went to this conference um, in Memphis, Tennessee, and we had a little bit of free time, and uh, we visited uh, the memorial, uh, visited um, aspects of the museum there to think and reflect upon Dr. King's legacy. So what it says in the picture is it's a group of men holding up a sign that says, I am a man. This was the rallying cry in Memphis back then. There were these sanitation strikes. Um, people were, were saying, um, uh, black people were saying, we are men too. We are human beings too. Don't forget about us. And the rallying cry was, I am a man. We're going to be coming at this from Amos chapter 2 today. But before we get there, I'd like us to ponder this quote from Dr. King. Dr. King said, our lives begin to end the day we are silent about things that matter. Our lives begin to end the day we are silent about things that matter. That, my friends, is why I have to preach this message. There are aspects of this message that will probably make us all a little bit uncomfortable. 
And so I thought really long and hard about preaching this. I was like, this point is probably going to step on some toes. This point is probably going to step on the other toes. Um, But at the end of the day, our lives begin to end the day we are silent about things that matter. The scriptures speak about justice, and as a minister of the gospel, I must speak about that which the scriptures speak. And one of, one of our jobs the, as leaders here at Mosaic is to help us learn to care about the things which matter. And maybe some of us don't even realize that certain things matter, and that's okay. Maybe you've lived a certain way, and so certain things never affected you. So they didn't matter to you all that much. Hopefully this sermon will help shine a little bit of light so that maybe some things will matter to you just a little bit more than when you started. Of course, this is a picture, I don't know how well you can see it on the screen, but of the hotel room that Dr. King was in uh, or standing outside of on the balcony when he was, he was assassinated. Our lives begin to end the day we are silent about things that matter. I'd like to ask a question, to pose a question. What is justice? Now, how many of you have seen court TV? Judge Judy, something like that. All right. So we have this idea in our culture about justice, right? And we watch these shows. People are fighting. People are arguing. And they, they yell out, I just want justice. I just want my just desserts. I want Justice. The problem is everyone in those shows seems to have a competing interpretation of justice, right? The guy who's, who's suing his girlfriend for $622. I always wonder how they come up with these weird amounts on these court TV shows. They're like, man, my life would just be better if you gave me the $620 you owe me. Um, and everyone has these competing claims of justice because then she says, well, no, I don't owe you $622. You actually owe me 814 and um, they just argue back and forth. But what is, what is justice? Does the Bible have anything to say about justice? Some of you have probably heard of a, of a pastor and writer named Tim Keller, who I think answers this question for us. He said, justice is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And uh, in explaining and defending this definition, Tim Keller went to to great care and pulled together a lot of verses from the Old Testament. I don't have time to show you all of those verses, but one that he he highlighted is Proverbs 31.8, which says, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are are destitute. The way this was written in in the original language, it carries this very strong idea of justice. The writer of Proverbs, whoever wrote chapter 31, said, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. That is the essence, biblically speaking, of justice. Justice is speaking up for those who have no voice, or maybe not much of a voice, or maybe a voice that no one else will listen to. We could multiply these verses. There are host of verses in the scriptures that speak of justice and that read just like this verse from Proverbs. We're not going to go there, though, because I want us to get to the book of Amos. But first, a little backstory. Amos is a prophet of God who's living, oh, give or take about 700, 750 years before Jesus was born. He's living and ministering in the nation of Israel, 
the northern kingdom, and it's during a time of great peace and prosperity. Jeroboam II is on the throne. Now, that may not mean anything to you. It didn't mean anything to me. When I looked at it, I was like, Jeroboam II. All right, I have to go back and look it up and remember who in the world Jeroboam II was. But Jeroboam II reigned over these northern kingdoms of Israel, and it was a great time of peace and prosperity. There, was, there were military accomplishments. They expanded the borders of Israel and, and reconquered territory that they'd lost a long time ago. They were, they were uh, rolling in the dough. The kingdom was fat and happy. They were having success. They were having prosperity. Everything was golden. In fact, the Israelites, they thought this was the proof that God was blessing them. In fact, there had been these prophets a while back, two of them, one named Elisha, one named Jonah, who had both prophesied that in the future, at some point, although neither of these prophets said when, but the prophet said in the future, at some point, God will bless Israel with this incredible era of peace and prosperity. So all of the Israelites doubtless thought, this is it. We good because everything is going according to plan. God is blessing us. God is on our side. We are keeping his law and therefore he's blessing us. That was this, this mentality. Nothing bad is going to happen to Israel. Because everything is good. And if you doubt that everything is good, just look, at, just look at the financial prosperity. Just look at the peace. Just look at how this mighty nation is being built. And then Amos, this prophet with a background of a shepherd. We don't know if he was a shepherd or like a foreman over a bunch of shepherds. But um, his background is that he takes care of sheep for a living. And he's picked by God to be a prophet to speak truth to those in power in Israel. Here's what he says. Beginning in Amos 2, verse 6, he declares, This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Amos looks at them. He says, guys, it's time to wake up out of your slumber. You think your nation is headed on the right track. You think that you're experiencing blessing and peace and prosperity from God. You've, you've pushed your morality to the back, but the house is not in order. And he says, for three sins of Israel, even for four I will not relent. Now, that's very significant wording. That, it's the eighth time that that wording is used so far in the book of Amos, which is only, it's in the middle of the second chapter. So eight times in a chapter and a half, God says, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. But the interesting thing is that in the first seven times that God says it, he's talking about other nations. He's talking about Edom. He's talking about Moab. He's talking about all of these other countries and interestingly enough, God never lists four sins for each of these other pagan countries. He says, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. And then he lists three for all of these different countries. He never, he never rounds it out. But when he gets to Israel, God says, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. 
For his own people, God looks them in the eye and he proceeds to list four sins that they are guilty of as a nation. It's kind of like God is looking at all these other nations and he's like, yeah, they're bad. These guys over here are doing bad stuff. These guys over here are doing bad stuff. But Israel, my chosen people. These ones who, who, who think that everything is good because of the peace and the prosperity in their land. They have reached the climax and the pinnacle of evil. That's what God is saying with this terminology of saying for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. And so God asks Amos, well, he probably doesn't ask him. He tells him to speak the truth to the people. So what does he say? God speaks through Amos and Amos says that the people of Israel sell the innocent for silver. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. You can see four different examples of injustice in this passage. I should have them listed on the screen. First off is slavery. I mean, it's right there, right? This is what the Lord says. They sell the innocent for silver. That means people who had not broken the law, right? Um, if you broke the law, you could go to prison. And, they, and back in, in Israel, they had certain kinds of, of customs where if you, if you broke certain laws, you could... You could pay it off by being a, a sort of an indentured servant. But these people that are being sold into slavery, they have done nothing. They are innocent of breaking the law. But some people, some very powerful people, some very apparently wealthy people decide, hey, we can make more money. We can get some silver. That's what the text says. Let's sell the innocent for silver. This is slavery. Or... Let's sell the needy for a pair of sandals. I'm going to ask you an intentionally provocative question. How much is a needy person worth? We kind of cringe even at that terminology because we're like, well, you can't put a price tag on a person. Right. But in Israel, the going rate was a pair of shoes. I don't know how much sandals sold for. I don't know. You know, they weren't Air Jordans or anything like that. So we're probably not talking about a whole lot of money. But that shows the value and the worth that people have in Israelite society when Amos is speaking these ringing words of truth. He says, you are selling people into slavery for a pair of shoes. A guy's like, hey, I, can't, I don't have any cash on me to get those sandals, but I'll give you my servant. How about you take this person? You can do whatever you want with him. Just give me the sandals. That's the kind of commerce that was going down in ancient Israel. They were selling the innocent for silver. They were selling the needy for a pair of sandals. They were trampling on the heads of the poor. This is the idea of exploitation. Uh, it says that, uh, you know, depending on what version you're, you're reading from, it might talk about how the poor have dust on their heads. Or uh, the idea is that the poor are being trampled into the dirt. And so they're down, face down in the mud, and they've got dirt on their heads because they've just been mashed down. 
That's the, that's the idea, the metaphor that's coming out here. And Amos says, look, you look around in society and you think everything is good because people are making money and because the country is at peace and because we're having you know, good military exploits and everything is good. But the poor are face down in the mud. You're walking all over them. We're trampling on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. Exploitation. And third, he said, this is oppression. Because we deny justice to the oppressed. Maybe it was a, you know, I don't know exactly who he had in mind here, but maybe it was a, a widow who was desperate to get her case heard in ancient Jewish society. You really needed a man to kind of vouch for you in many ways. And God had put safeguards in place to protect people, to protect non-residents, to protect widows, to protect orphans. But the problem was, you see, the problem wasn't that God had set up an unjust society. He had put rules and he had put things in place to protect people. But Israel wasn't listening. Israel wasn't obeying. Israel wasn't doing it. There are people who need justice. But it's not coming. They feel oppressed. Maybe they've been wronged by a landlord. Can't do anything about it if your husband already passed away. Because society was very much built and structured in a way where it would be difficult to have a voice in that kind of context. Especially if the leaders weren't listening and obeying the safeguards that God had put in place to protect people like that. So there's oppression taking place and then there's sexual abuse. Father and son use the same girl. So profane my holy name. This is the thing, right? Nobody wants to talk about in Israel, Israelite society. They just want to focus on we got peace. We got prosperity. Everything is good. You know, the stock market is up. Jobs are good. You know, we haven't had a war in 10 years. Everything is great. Yeah, yeah, let's not talk about what's happening over there. Everybody look over here. Let's focus over here. Let's see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Because over here, some father and son are both using and abusing the same woman. Probably a slave or a servant who has little choice. And as a result of this, they're violating God's moral code You see, each one of these four things is a violation of God's law. It's a violation of the way that God set things up. And and when, when Amos is crying out on behalf of God, you hear a little bit of the character and the heart of God, that God is a God who cares deeply about injustice. So Amos shows up because I think Amos understood what we started with, that our lives begin to end the day we are silent about things that matter. Amos probably wasn't too popular in Israel. Nobody wanted to notice what that dad and his son were doing with that girl in the other room. Nobody wanted to notice how the poor were face down in the dirt. But Amos comes along and he has no choice because God has told him what to say. So he speaks the truth. 
with a fearless and bold voice crying out against the injustice in Israel. What was God's response? God said, this is what I see. I don't like it. So here's what I'm going to do. Verse 13. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. If you're not sure what God thinks about injustice, just look at that first verse. Can we go back, Trey? Verse 13. What does God say he's going to do? I will what? I will crush you. Now, I don't know about you. But I'd hate to walk into a boxing ring with God. And he looks at me and says, Stephen, I'm about to crush you. That's what God does with the nation of Israel in this moment. He says, I'm going to crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. I'm going to wake you up from this slumber. That's what Amos is, uh, is here to do. And as a result of your sin, as a result of your injustice, I'm going to crush you. Then he begins to delve into these military examples about how the warrior won't be able to save his life. The archer won't be able to stand his ground. The soldier will not get away. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. What is he saying? I think what God is saying, and it's borne out by history, is, hey, all those other nations around you that are really bad too, I'm going to bring them over against you in judgment. That's what... Pastor Woodley preached on last week how Habakkuk was saying that God's enemies were going to be mobilized by God to attack God's people. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? Let me say that again. God's enemies were going to be mobilized by God to attack God's people. Now, that doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem fair. But God is like, that's the point. You have been unjust in your own society. So I am going to mobilize nations that don't even believe in me to bring judgment against you. He's prophesying military struggles and political problems in the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. So, this is the context of ancient Israel. This is... Amos in northern Israel. Probably so far, you might be a little uncomfortable, but we're all, we're all okay. We're like, man, those scoundrels, those Israelites, we would never do such a thing. But I want us to talk about some modern American injustice. Now, let me hasten to add, I don't have time to talk about them all. Okay, I picked three that we're going to discuss today. Maybe you have a different perspective than me on this. Maybe you think this is not a, an issue of justice or injustice, and that's okay. One of the things that I think is important at a church like this, where there's so many of us coming from so many different backgrounds, is that we open up space to have conversations about important issues like this. So if you don't agree with me, that's cool. Let's go grab coffee together. Share with me why. 
Let's have conversations. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Okay? We cool? Modern American injustice. First thing I want to talk about is racial discrimination. It seems fitting and sad that we have to talk about that on a day when we are honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. He fought for racial equality for blacks and other minorities. Many aspects of his dream have been realized. As we stood at the memorial in Memphis in April, I stood there with Sonia and with Sean. We are white. But I also stood there with Emily and with Josiah, who are Haitian. Stood there with Kevin, who's Taiwanese. I stood there with Danasia, who's Trinidadian. Part of Dr. King's dream was that the church could become what he called the beloved community. That would be a church that would be inclusive of all people. I think that aspect of Dr. King's dream is sitting right here in front of us. You guys are in part a fulfillment of that aspect of his dream. I think other parts of it he'd still be dreaming about. If you think that racial discrimination doesn't exist in America anymore, just look at these pictures. So on the left is uh, when Sonia and I were on vacation in, in South Carolina this summer. Um, got the, the chance to briefly visit Emmanuel Church in Charleston where a white supremacist ran into a church and killed, I think it was nine African-Americans simply because they were African-American. In the top right, it's a picture of a protester protesting the death of Freddie Gray who died in police custody. Lower right, Eric Garner, who died here in New York City on Staten Island when he was killed by police for, um, I think they said uh, something about selling cigarettes without a license or something like that. Famously yelled, I can't breathe. I'm sure many of you remember the unrest that occurred across the country as some of these things occurred over the last year, year and a half. I think we probably all agree, no matter what our cultural background or perspective is, we, we look at these types of issues and we say, okay, something is going on. And maybe you come at it from one perspective, somebody else comes at it from another perspective. But we can't say that our country has moved beyond race. I know a lot of people have wanted it to. But these pictures are a simple reminder, no matter which side of the fence you're on, our country has not moved beyond race. And that is why we need churches like this that are churches for all nations. Because it's in the church, primarily, and not in society, that these types of issues are going to be resolved. Let me say a word specifically about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand the Black Lives Matter movement, which is mobilized in response to some of these things. I've heard it repeated a number of times that to say Black Lives Matter is racist because you're saying that no other lives matter. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Black Lives Matter movement stands for. All they're saying is what we started with, that picture. They're saying, hey... I am a man. Our lives matter too, and for too long in American society, we have been overlooked. I think those of us who are not black or are not Latino or Asian, those of us who are from the majority culture here in America, 
We need to take a step back and listen to the struggle of our brothers and sisters. Before we quickly dismiss it and say our country's moved beyond this, let's go out to lunch with them and hear their struggle and see if maybe, just maybe, injustice still exists in our country. And like Amos, we need to remind people that it does. Racial discrimination. Second one here that I'd like to talk about is abortion. Abortion. Now, I want to be very careful in what I say about this because I firmly recognize that there may be those of you here who have had an abortion in your past. Or maybe you've encouraged or pressured your, your, your girlfriend to have an abortion uh, in the past. So I want to say very clearly that there is grace for every single sin that any of us could ever commit. Every sin, every mistake, every error of our past can be covered by the blood of Jesus. So when I say what I have to say about abortion, please do not hear me saying that there is no hope, that there is no grace, there is no forgiveness. But with that said, just as I have a responsibility to shine the light on racial injustice in America, I also have a responsibility as a pastor to shine the light on what our country is doing as it pertains to abortion. Since the Supreme Court decision that legalized uh, abortion, Roe v. Wade, we have killed 58 million children in America. 58 million. We killed 6 million Jews in World War II and we called it a holocaust. We've killed 58 million children in America and we call it the right to choose. Planned Parenthood, which I've got their logo up here on the screen. They've been in the news a lot over the last year because of a series of sting operations that uncovered um, that some shady things were going on. Those videos are disputed. There are people that say they don't prove things, people that say they do prove things. But at the very least, those videos have raised serious questions about the potential sale and harvesting of organs of aborted babies Then there's New York State, which in 1970 passed a law saying that New York State wanted to be the, quote, refuge state. So that if you wanted to get in the ad of the time said, if you want to get unpregnant, come to New York State. New York devised an entire marketing campaign to encourage people to come to New York to get rid of their children. Laws that have never been undone. So that New York City at one time was referred to as the abortion capital of the country. If you value life as I do, then you will value black lives. If you value life as I do, you will value the unborn. It's legal here in New York City to abort your baby at 24 weeks. We first heard Xavier's heartbeat, our unborn child, around 13 weeks. We could have heard it perhaps as early as five weeks. But yet it would have been legal to snuff out his life nearly 10 to 12 weeks after we first heard his heartbeat. My friends, Amos would stand here 
And he would say, it's time for our culture to wake up to matters of injustice. Third issue that I want to talk about, and this one may lay me in some hot water, I don't know. I want to talk about discrimination against Muslims. Certain leaders recently have called for a ban on all Muslims in the United States. I'm not going to name their names. You probably know who I'm talking about. Okay. Um, But they have said that we need to just keep Muslims out of the United States. Now, let me be very clear. There's There's a movement of people who say that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. I don't believe that with anything, okay? There is recently a a professor at Wheaton who um, has been placed on administrative leave. Wheaton is a a Christian college. She declared in her political science class that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. So she was placed on administrative leave for violating the school's policy, which teaches that Jesus alone is God. It's not something that Muslims believe. Muslims firmly believe and teach Jesus was not God. So I want to reiterate and stand firm that Jesus alone is God. Jesus is the only way to the the Father. He's the only way to heaven. And that if a Muslim person does not embrace Jesus Christ, sadly, they will die and spend an eternity in hell. So I am not part of this stream of people that says, it's all the same, it doesn't really matter, just... Call it God and worship it. I don't believe that. But I also don't believe that the proper response is to keep people out of our country who have a different view than the one I do. Got a verse that we should have on the screen. Deuteronomy 27, 19. God said, Cursed be anyone who withholds the justice due to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. We're talking about immigrants. We're talking about people who want to come to America. Perhaps they're refugees from ISIS or whatever. They want to come to America. They are immigrants. God said, cursed be anyone who withholds justice due to the immigrant. Again, I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. I don't want to be in the boxing ring with God. And he looks me in the eye and he's like, I'm going to crush you. Frankly, I don't want our country to be in the boxing ring with God where he looks us in the eye and he says, I'm going to crush you. Part of the reason why I believe it's wrong to discriminate against Muslims is because I'm a Baptist. Baptists have historically believed in two doctrines. One is called the separation of church and state. It was Baptists who helped write the First Amendment, protecting and defending free uh, exercise of religion. It was Baptists who introduced that idea to Thomas Jefferson. Baptists also articulated this idea called soul liberty, meaning that every single person has this individual freedom to either accept or reject Jesus Christ. You see, there were so many other other denominations and religions, and many of them were state-controlled. So if the governor of Maryland was Catholic, the early colonists in Maryland were Catholic. If the, if the, um, the mayor of Boston was a, a Puritan, then everybody in Boston would be Puritans. But then the Baptists came along, and they're like, no, we don't think it should work that way. We think people should be able to decide whether or not they believe in Jesus. Keep in mind, the Baptists believed in Jesus just as much as anybody. But they said, 
We believe in this idea of freedom because we believe that this is who God is and he values justice. So, whether you agree with me or not about those three issues, whether you want to talk about a whole host of other issues, and there's a lot of different things we could talk about, my point is just to introduce three issues for consideration. Because like Amos, I believe that my job is to help open our eyes, to raise awareness, so that we think biblically about what is going on in our culture. What should we do, though, about injustice? Maybe we all agree there's some problems in our country. But what do we do? What do we do next? I want to propose four ideas. First, we must listen to the hurting and cry to God for justice. We must listen to the hurting and cry to God for justice. Um, Pretty much the main point of the last two sermons that Pastor Woodley has preached, which, by the way, can I just give a commercial here? I was in North Carolina for two weeks for, for my studies, and I was listening to the sermons on the podcast because I believe that I am under the authority of this church because I'm a member here. And so even though I was traveling, even though I went to another church down there on Sundays, I was like, you know what? That's not good enough because I need my church to speak into my soul. I want to encourage you to have that same perspective about the church, about the value of the word of God as it is proclaimed here. But as I listened to those sermons while I was in North Carolina and South Carolina, The single biggest idea over the course of those two weeks was that it is necessary to cry out to God. Was that the point? It is necessary to cry out to God. It's not just something that we can do. It's something that we must do. We must listen to the hurting and cry out to God for justice. People are hurting in New York. People are hurting... In America, people are hurting throughout the world. We have a responsibility to listen and then to cry out for justice. Second, this church must speak with a prophetic voice. That's what Amos was doing, right? He showed up. The nation was fat and happy. They didn't want to be disturbed from their slumber. They were doing the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil routine. And Amos said, no, God's not going to let me, let you get away with that. The church has always spoke with a prophetic voice. I love the wording from Dr. King's letters when he said, the church shouldn't be a thermometer that reflects the way things are in the culture. The church should be a thermostat that regulates the culture. You see, we are, we are to function as the conscience of our nation. You expect politicians to do that? Good luck waiting. That's our job, is to speak with a prophetic voice on these issues. I'm always inspired when I think of these sorts of things by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Nazi Germany as a, as a pastor. And the church in Nazi Germany at first endorsed the Fuhrer. They endorsed Adolf Hitler. But eventually, they saw through him. They realized what was going on, and slowly but surely, leaders of the church began to stand up and say, this is wrong. Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
spoke with a prophetic voice. Cost him his life. When Hitler was in the bunker and World War II was lost right before Hitler committed suicide, he sent an order. Go kill the theologians. Go kill the pastors that we have thrown in prison because they dared to oppose Nazi Germany. Hitler knew he'd lost. He was about to kill himself. But his, his retaliation against the church was to have men like Bonhoeffer killed. But I'd rather be a Bonhoeffer speaking with a prophetic voice than to do nothing. Third, Christians must do justice on an individual level. This is probably the easiest point to apply here because sometimes you can think, man, well, there's so, like, what do we do about abortion or racial injustice or all of these big things? Like, what do we do? Well, if you feel God is laying it on your heart to do something about abortion, you could go adopt a child. Save one soul from being aborted. Now, that's radical. It's putting our money where our mouth is. We prefer Twitter activism where you just change your avatar and that shows you're down for the struggle and then you just go right on living your privileged life. But maybe, just maybe, God would call you to actually do something to help. Maybe you can't fix the problem of homelessness in New York City, but maybe you can help one homeless person. Maybe you could save one life at the abortion clinic. Or pick your justice issue. We must do justice on an individual level. And then finally, we must wait for God's kingdom. I was talking with some guys who are visiting with us out of town yesterday that we live in the tension between the city that is and the city that is to come. It's called the New Jerusalem, heaven. We know that's going to be a perfect city without injustice. But we live over here in cities full of injustice. And so, so our hearts are torn between knowing this is the way it is, but this is the way it's going to be. And I can't wait till it's like this. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, we're in this mess here. What do we do is we wait and we pray and we long for the coming of God's kingdom. Because ultimately... None of these justice issues are ever going to be fully resolved until Jesus returns. The Bible describes him as the just judge of all the earth who will do right. And when he sets up his kingdom, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be perfect. It's worth waiting for. But in the meantime, we wait. And as Pastor Woodley has articulated the last two weeks, we don't just wait passively. But we cry out to God. Because crying out to God is not just something we can do. It is something we must do. I'd like us to bow our heads for prayer. I'd like everybody to close their eyes.